tuned into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from lead SNC coach at the Melbourne Rebels, Luke Vella. It comes from episode number 357, and it's all about tendons, rethinking rehabilitation, tendon health, and the rise of blood flow restriction training, how they all link together. So we have a little chat around symptoms, we have a little chat around solutions, managing players with tendinopathies. Really, really interesting episode with Luke. But just before we do dive into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect, analyze, visualize, and present data to coaches, check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy at rockdaisy.com. So I'm just going to ask you from a very much an applied, uh, get an applied view of, of that discussion, if that's okay. And then I'd like to so start off with tips for managing tendon health um, and just get your view on that. And then we can, I'm sure the conversation will, uh, will, will fly off from there. Yeah, of course. Um, and I mean, I've obviously listened to, to Keith's podcast and and his wealth of knowledge is, is exceptional in that area. Um, and and there's a there's a real sort of uh, development of our knowledge in, in tender management at the moment being led by people like Keith. Um, and, and there's a, another researcher down in um, uh, at Queen Mary University of London, uh, Professor Hazel Screen. She's a, a professor of biomedical engineering. And these types of researchers who are, who are really driven by a scientific background are really advancing our knowledge in, in how we manage tendons. And it's it's a really exciting time to to be involved in, in that area. Um, in terms of managing tendons from a, from a professional team sport perspective, um, I think it's really important to actually appreciate firstly what we don't know about tendons and and that helps to inform what we actually can influence and what we can uh, impact on because we really don't know a lot still. Um, we still don't really understand uh, the source of, of tendon pain. Uh, we know that, that there's likely a, a local mechanism of pain stemming from the tendon itself. We know there's likely to be centrally driven mechanisms uh, stemming from the brain and, and the spinal cord, uh, but we don't really know what drives tendon pain. Um, and we're still really starting to understand how adaptable tendons can be and, and how adaptable tendons are. And a lot of that stems from, from, from research from, from Keith's group and, and research from Professor Screen's group. Um, we're starting to learn a lot more about actually just how adaptable tendons can be. Um, and the other thing that makes tendons really difficult to manage is, is tendon, in a case of a tendinopathy, you can have changes in the pathology, you can have changes in how the tendon functions, and you can have changes in symptoms. And those three things can occur all independent of one another. We don't really understand how those three things are interrelated. So you can have changes in pathology without necessarily having any symptoms. You can have symptoms without having changes in function. All three of them may even coexist. Um, and so for me, that the number one thing that um, that, that needs to be that needs to be, or you need to start with in trying to successfully manage a tendon is you need to understand on an individual level um, the relationship between load, pain, and function within each of your athletes. And that was one of the things that we invested quite a lot of time in, in our athletes who struggle with tendon pain at Edinburgh. Um, so we'd effectively go through a, a subjective monitoring process with those players um, and, and utilized our, our sports science guys and our data analytics guys to, to understand how those changes in symptom would, um, would be influenced by different types of load um, for a professional rugby player. And, and, and that certainly impacted how we, how we managed our athletes um, both day to day and also, and also long term. It, it gave us indications of how effective our strategies were being. Um, and, and then I think 
you also need to understand concepts of of how to effectively load a tendon and Keith went into this in, in great de- detail in in your previous podcast but I think what was really important concept for me was to understand that tendons are not a contractile tissue and so when you hear debates about the different contraction types and how do we load a tendon successfully the contraction type doesn't matter tendons don't respond to different types of contraction they respond to strain and stress so they all they know is are they being pulled on and how fast are they being pulled on and they'll adapt accordingly so you use different contraction types to modify how your neuromuscular system responds. And we know that changes in the neuromuscular system are essential in managing tendinopathy. And you can also use different contraction types to modify stress and strain to to try and appropriately load a tendon. Um, And so for me, there there was really four key concepts that um, that an effective loading strategy needs to be. Uh, and first of all, the loading strategy needs to be individualized. And so very rarely does tendinopathy exist in isolation. We know with, say, patellar tendon, for example, there's probably four or five um, um, d- differential diagnoses that, that might coexist or, or that may be misdiagnosed. And so you need to develop an individualized loading strategy based on how provocative the tendon is and how provocative other structures around the tendon are. The second thing you need to consider is that it needs to be it needs to be really hard, um, and so we know from from lots of different research and, and, and systematic analysis from Peter Maliaris's group in uh, at Monash University that it needs to be at about at least a seventy percent of a one repetition max if you're talking about um, it, the intensity of loading. We also know that the exercises that you select should be really simple. Um, so tendons have a a real knack of hiding within a kinetic chain. Um, so really simple exercises that will load the target muscle and, and load the tendon effectively will be really important. Um, and and then the final one to consider is that it needs to be intensive. So really bringing those, two, those last two concepts together, it, you need to give the athlete an opportunity to produce high amounts of force to load the tendon effectively. Um, so for example, if you're using an isometric contraction, you need to be choosing muscle lengths at which the muscle has an opportunity to produce high amounts of force. And that can be driven by both symptoms and also the length tension relationship of that muscle. There's loads to go out there. I'm going to rewind it right back to the start and just go symptoms. So what kind of symptoms are you, were you seeing in your athletes who had tendon issues? Just so people can get an idea if they are going through it and try to different understand what's going on what kind of symptoms are we are we normally normally seeing yeah of course so um so we looked at um for a for someone with patellar tendon pain we looked at, at two different tests we always oh, sorry three tests effectively um we wanted to look at um a subjective rating out of 10 for all of our options uh, and we would look at morning stiffness um uh, as one of our indicators and that's first that's that, that's recorded first thing in the morning uh, we then look at a single leg decline squat um, to, to subject the athlete to a compression load. Uh, and we then look at uh, a repeated single leg submaximal kind of movement jump um, to, to look at subjecting them to an energy storage load. Um, they then record that as a subjective rating out of 10. And we do that prior to all of our, um, all of our main training sessions. In the instance of an Achilles tendon, we'd go, we'd go through the same process. So we would look at, um, we would look at a measure of morning stiffness. We'd look at a subjective measure of discomfort under a compressive load. So that would be a, a single leg calf raise off a step. Um, and then we'd look at um, more of a single leg hopping task, that, like a single leg pogo jump, uh, and then record their subjective scores there. Um, yeah. So I guess one of the other three was, was function. 
So what function, what um, reductions in function would you see with someone with tendon? Again, going through the maybe the two examples that you've just given. Sure. Yeah. So our process effectively was, um, first of all, when the athlete would present to us in the morning, we'd look to identify whether there's been a change in the athlete's symptoms. And if the answer to that was no, that's the end of, of our monitoring with them. They'll, they'll crack on with the day's training. If the answer was yes, our next step would be to try and understand, can we modify that athlete's pain through an exercise-based intervention? So do they respond to, to, to an effective warm-up strategy, whether that's with isometric loading um, or, or, or whatever else we use, a blood flow restriction training protocol? Um, and if the answer to that was, was no, we'd then go on to look at whether or not there'd been a reduction in muscle function. Um, and typically for, for that parameter, we would look at using for a, uh, for a patella tendinopathy, uh, we'd look at a counter movement jump, um, on our four steps and we'd look at primarily eccentric impulse, uh, but also looking at, um, uh, looking at concentric mean power. And, and likewise with a, an Achilles tendon, we'd look at a bilateral drop jump and, and, and look at, um, look at limb symmetry, um, in both of those tests effectively. And the, the the summation of all of those bits and pieces would then inform our decision making process whether it's the right thing to do to to put this athlete out to train um, on any given day whether modification was required um, or whether they were good to crack on and we were happy with um, with with small or, or moderate changes in their symptoms I'm sorry but we're going to be here forever because I've got so many questions <laughs> based on what you're saying I'm going to kill your evening um, so blood flow restriction training let's have a little dive into that and it seems that you've said it and it's been on my mind anyway what would be the protocols that you would use to try to get um to <laughs> try to improve the, a function going into going through that process that you've just mentioned yeah sure so most of the research around using blood flow restriction training to to, to relieve pain um in different conditions of, of anterior knee pain in particular um, they've used the, the, the common intervention that a lot of people have probably would have heard about with blood flow restriction training, which is your, your 30, 15, 15, 15, or, or, or a combination of failure sets. Uh, but effectively, they've been highly fatiguing, uh, high load protocols with a reasonably high limb occlusion pressure. Uh, what we've just done at Edinburgh is gone through a little bit of an in-house trial um, where we've looked at using a low-load blood flow restriction training protocol to see if we could get the same changes in, um, in pain relief uh, without impacting on muscle performance. Uh, so effectively what we did there was uh, we tested our, our, our symptoms off. We used patella tendon pain as our example. Uh, people get a little bit nervous when you start doing too much calf loading prior to a pitch session. So we used um, uh, our athletes with either patella tendinopathy or, or, or another form of anterior knee pain. They'd go through their normal morning monitoring pro protocol um, in combination with a, a pre-exercise counter-movement jump. We'd then go through our blood flow restriction training protocol, which was four sets of 10 um, of a seated leg extension and a decline goblet squat. Um, and we looked at uh, a, a two, sorry, a three-second eccentric phase with a one-second concentric phase using a fifty percent limb occlusion pressure um, and a two-minute rest with the cuffs off in between the exercises. And what we were able to show there was was roughly a forty-five percent um, reduction in the athlete's symptoms uh, and a, a two to three percent increase in, in counter movement jump performance. So. The, those results aren't quite as large as the, the improvements that you see with a higher blood flow restriction training protocol. You tend to see up around 60 to 65%. 
but a really effective intervention nonetheless and and something that we were comfortable to incorporate as as part of a pre-training strategy because we were confident that that there wasn't going to be an impact on on muscle performance would you get have any athletes that wouldn't respond to that bfr so there are a couple of things that we found, um, or I say we found that were anecdotal uh, within that study, um, is that, like I mentioned before, the, the the impact of the intervention seemed to adhere to a dose-response relationship. Uh, so the harder it was, um, the, the more pain relief we seemed to get. So it became a little bit of a balancing act as to, as to what our protocols for each of our athletes ended up being. Um, and there also seemed to be a little bit of a process of diminishing returns. Um, and so with some of our athletes who, who initially responded really well, um, they started to see less and less of effect uh, as they went further into the, further into the process of, of the research trial. And so we trialed with those athletes switching the exercises effectively to, to, to increase the mechanical load just a little bit and they started to respond really well again and so purely anecdotal but we did we, we did see a, a process of diminishing returns with with our bfr protocols so another thing that you used was isometrics you said during that then, then increased function during the uh during the warm-up phase before the before training can you talk to us a little bit about that what you what that looked like um, yeah, so we used our, well, really we experiment a little bit with, with each of our athletes because, like I mentioned, the, the driver of pain in, in, in tendinopathy and, um, is, is highly individualized. The, the combination of pathologies that each athlete is going to present to you with is, is always going to be a little bit different and a little bit unique. And, and so you need to trial a few different interventions, especially pre-training to see what's going to give that athlete the most effective response. So we certainly found with, with some athletes that an isometric loading protocol was, uh, was really effective. Others didn't respond well at all. Um, so it was a bit of trial and error. We, we tended to start with, um, with Ebony Rio's protocol of uh, five sets of 45 seconds on a really isolated exercise. So we'd start with a seated leg extension. Um, we, we didn't look at, uh, at testing or predicting one repetition max. We, we used RPE as our scale of intensity and, and looked to progress the athlete to be reporting uh, a 7 out of 10 or greater on their, um, on their RPE. And I think the important thing that we looked to do there was, was also track performance on that as, a, as, a, as an isolated exercise for, for that athlete because essentially we want to change the, the function of the muscle and we want to change the, uh, the force generating potential of that muscle and we need to continue to 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 adapt their protocol as they get better at it and so we did play around with different protocols to, to try and improve those qualities we looked at at the 30 second mark which is which is what keith sort of implement or, or indicated was was where you look to see the greatest stress relaxation response or the greatest bang for your buck with your stress relaxation response but we'd also go down to as short as as, as 15 seconds as a pre-training strategy to um, to again try and give the athlete an opportunity to to, to lift heavier weights and, and to progress their strength in, in that particular type of exercise. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 357, which you can find on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today, and look forward to chatting to you next time.